Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So, thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Before the show, here's the shout-out to our new sponsor, Ferro Wine. Ferro Wine has been the largest wine shop in Italy since 1920. They have generously supplied us with our new t-shirt. Would you like one? Just donate 50 euros and it's all yours. Plus, we'll throw in our new book, Jumbo Shrimp Guide to International Grape Varieties in Italy. For more info, go to italianwinepodcast.com and click donate. Or check out Italian Wine Podcast on Instagram. Welcome, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. Today, I'm pleased to have as a guest Melanie Offenlock, who I was surprised to meet on a trip once in Italy to find out that she was the Dallas Wine Chick blogger that I had been reading for a couple of years, and I never put two and two together until we kind of met in person, and it was, oh, you're Dallas Wine Chick. (laughs) <laughs> which was kind of a fun thing. Anyway, Melanie, welcome to the show. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and wh- what you do and why you do what you do. Absolutely. Well, that that's so flattering, Steve. I, I was thrilled to meet you too after communicating for so long virtually. my I have been blogging for, gosh, about 12 years now. I am not a, a paid wine person in any capacity. I, I've been running my own marketing consulting firm, actually working with tech companies, and I'm the acting chief marketing officer for a company by the name of Icon Science. So wine really has been a passion and a love and a lot of times a a weekend thing where I actually write the blog and and get it out. And, um, you know, it's something that I want to make sure that that I continue to, to tell my story of wine, which is as you know, the story of, of so many others as, as I learned my way through the process. 12 years ago, what made you start to write a wine blog and what was your level of wine interest and knowledge? I can't even count back 12 years ago. Was that like 2009? <laughs> yes, 2009. Well, we're, 20, we're 2021. So, you know, honestly, it was really... Working for for someone early in my career that that I called Sleepy Ed, and Sleepy Ed would sit in his corner office and he would read the Wall Street Journal, and none of us who were working with him actually knew what he did. I, I still don't know what he did to this day. <laughs> and you know, all of these social media platforms and and new things were coming down the pike. And here I sat working for a large PR conglomerate, and I had a chance of becoming Sleepy Ed in my corner office if I didn't learn, you know, Twitter and, um, you know, to a lesser extent, Facebook and all the other things that were really going to change the way that we communicate. And so I got on Twitter, and I was the generic Melanie Zero. (laughs) I started talking about marketing and I looked back about 45 days later and the people that followed me was 40 something of them. 
they all reported directly either into me or into one of my direct reports. You know, there was nothing social about that. There was nothing that that was, you know, representative of what social media was about. So I, I decided it was time to pivot. And I started talking about wine. And I told my husband, and I have no idea where this number came from, that I, I had to hit, I think it was 1,600 followers. And somehow I did. And I found this engaged wine community and decided that I'd start a blog right around, I think it was my very first wine bloggers conference, which was in uh, Washington back in, gosh, 2010. And that's how, how the game got rolling. <laughs> And what was your level of wine knowledge at the time? Why wine? Um, you know, I was very enthusiastic. We went to a lot of, my husband and I went to a lot of tastings and a lot of, you know, different events to try to learn more. I, you know, am not an expert. I'm still not an expert 12 years later. I, I just have developed that passion. Okay. I'm going to push you on this. Why wine? You can never know enough. And I love the challenge. Every time that, that I learn something or I feel like I have accomplished learning of a certain region or a certain variety or, you know, certain terroir, I find out there are a hundred more things that, or a thousand more things that I have to learn and I know nothing. And I love that. Yeah. And it's all, it's all stories. Okay. So you started 12 years ago. Now you're in it three months, six months nine months, a year, two years. At some point in that time period, you must have thought, well, how long am I going to keep this thing up? Yes. You know, there, there are times where you wonder, does anybody read it? Does, uh, does all of this work? Will it make an impact? Because, you, you know, it takes a lot of work. I know people think it, it's if they don't know, oh, she's just running around going on trips, having a fantastic time. And you know, a lot of times you're, you know, you're working harder than you may work because you may have a 19 hour day where you're expected to figure out time zones and you're figured, you know, expected to figure out um, how to get back to the hotel and get something posted because that's the expectation of the people that are hosting you. And, and the, oh yeah, you have this job that you have to uh, check in on and make sure that everything is still going as well. So you know, there are times where I get off a plane and, and my husband just looks at me. He's like, I thought you were on a fun wine trip. <laughs> right. But I don't think we're going to get any sympathy for working 19 hours a day on a wine trip when we're going to like three wineries a day and meeting some of the most interesting people in the world and drinking the most interesting wines, seeing the most interesting and beautiful places and having wonderful food and conversation. Absolutely not. <laughs> so we're, we're not going to ask for that. But but you kept going. So now it's 12 years later. And there are really very few people who have done what you've done. I mean, I was involved with the blog Bloggers Conference from the very beginning and am a blogger myself, but not to the extent that you are. I'm doing much more of the business of, of wine. But you've kept at it for all this time. How do you keep yourself motivated? You know, it's just, it's something that I have to do by uh, Sunday at midnight. And a lot of times it's a Saturday, Sunday project. Obviously, I, I have my interviews and my stories done, or at least written down of what I want to talk about long before that. But it really is a passion. 
know, whether I, when I used to have my global job before I started my consulting business and I, I was on plane for, in some cases, you know, 15, 16 hours trying to get to the, the destination where I needed to be, it, it brought me joy to unplug and to write about wine. Okay. So how much time do you think you have to spend to do a blog post from the beginning of, um, you know, focusing on that one, prepping, outlining, writing, and then posting? Gosh, it takes a lot of time. I, I'd say eight to 12 hours at a minimum. If you're really diving in, by the time you do your interview, you taste the wines, you take your notes, you do your research, and I'm probably being conservative. Okay. Uh, I, I certainly believe that because I know how long it takes to prep and, and do this whole podcast. But so you talked about tasting. So is it is, is the what what is the focus of the blog? Is it about tasting wines and your discovery of learning uh, about wines or? It's really about the story of wine and, and the story of the people behind the wine. You know, there's so many places that you can go to get a rating or to get an opinion you know, I certainly have my opinion. You've known me for a long time, Steve, but there are some people that, that want me to tell them, you know, what, what is a good bread? And, and I'm happy to do those review columns a couple of times a year, but I'm not going to rate wines. I'm not a wine expert. You know, wine is a lot like art and you may, you know, love a piece of art on your wall. Some people don't know why they like it. They just know they like it. And, you know, wine for a lot of people is, is seen in the same way as art is. A good wine is one that you like, a bad one is one that you don't, no matter what anybody tells you, right? Well, I like that. Because, you know, one of the things that we see on these trips and everything else is this vocabulary that comes with it of, you know, hints of this and uh, after notes of this, you know, fried gooseberries and chopped walnut shells and smoked pineapple husks. And, you know, I never heard of any of those things. And they don't mean anything to me. I mean, my, I've said this before, my philosophy of what people want to know about wine is what does it taste like in words I understand and will it go with what I'm having for dinner tonight? Those two things for the most part. Now, those who want to go deeper into the story behind the wine may be more interested in maybe just a couple of factoids as opposed to the in-depth lectures that um, we get to, and I say get to go to, have the pleasure of going to, where they go deep into soil characteristics and glaciation and uh, prevailing winds and weather patterns and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, when you do your notes and when you do your evaluations, what kind of vocabulary do you use? I try to keep it um, more simplistic than on the upper end. There, there are some words that weave your, your way into the vocabulary that I probably use a little more consistently than I should um, because it's the first thing that associates when I try it, right? Which is usually going to be acid, tannins, and uh, you know, f fruit on the nose, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, um, you know, I, I try, I, you know, I have, I have one of the, uh, the great tasting kits that have all the different vials that you can smell. Cool. And you use that as a, as a way to codify what you're um, doing? Sometimes I I'd say I, I, I would like to be more disciplined about it. Um, but I do try to take that out regularly and, and, you know, smell it and, and try to reacquaint my sen my senses with, with some new things, especially if I'm drinking a wine I haven't had in a while. So when you're tasting a wine, what are you looking for? 
uh, obviously, do I like it? Do I not like it? But you're going to be writing about it and going to be sharing some information with other people. What are the things that you look for and want to, you know, the categories that you want to tell people about? Well, this wine is this. I mean, you're, I think you're always looking for balance, right? You're, you're always looking for what is this a representation of what this wine is supposed to be based upon the region that it's from. I'm, I'm looking a lot of times for regions I don't know much about. Like I, I got to taste um, some Armenian wine earlier this year. And that was a really cool discovery for me because I hadn't had it. I really didn't know much about the region. And it's one of the oldest wine regions. And, you know, that was like, that was one of my aha moments. And I really enjoy you know, the journey of finding finding new things that I know nothing about. So talk about what uh, places you've been either in, in real life that you've actually had the chance to visit and those that you've explored in, in your own uh, pursuit of wine knowledge. Start with the places you've been because that's where we met. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Well, um, I've been several places in Italy, include, including Ben Italy, which is if, if you haven't either either seen or experienced in Italy, it is the, I think, second largest trade show of wine out there. It's, it's, no, actually, I think it's the largest. The largest now. Ah, yeah. Good, good. Yeah. And you can, you can tell just because it takes you about an hour and a half to get from building one to building 15. (laughs) Yes. It it is football fields of wine. (laughs) You know, I've obviously been there. I've, I've been to, Tuscany, I've I've been to um, Trento, I've been to four or five different regions in Spain, I've been to, oh gosh, now I'm having a senior moment, <laughs> to I think all of the wine regions in the U.S. Next on my, my list uh, at, at the very top is going to be Croatia. Uh, yeah. That's uh, kind of sitting out there for me as well. A funny story talking about people reading you and, and you not knowing that they're reading you. Or uh, one day I came home and there was a package, UPS package, and it was a a, a whole sampler of Rieslings and um, cabs from Croatia. There was a guy who was thinking about introducing a product to the U.S. He had heard one of my presentations where I said I really love Riesling and not only does was he doing the they, they make rieslings and he sent them to me and I thought wow how cool is that like either stalkers or lurkers which is a nice way uh, to say about it but I think back to your point there's a whole bunch of people who you're making an impact on that you know don't get any reaction from but when it does come up they'll I'll often say something. They'll say, "Yeah, you know, I read, I read what you wrote." What, really? <laughs> There's somebody out there who's reading it. So you're having an impact. Have you had much feedback from your listeners like that? You know, I have. The um, I think the funniest moment was uh, I was in a a Whole Foods in in Dallas, and someone walked up to me and said, "Are you? Wait, are you the Dallas Wine Chicken?" My 14-year-old was like, who is that? I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, how does that person know you, mom? That's so weird. 
<laughs> she was not amused. It was funny. What are the areas in Italy? So you've been to a couple. I think we were both on a trip to Trento Dock, which was astonishing to me because of, of the altitude that uh, they grow the grapes at. It's up at about 3,000 feet. A thousand meters or so, and the aging um, for like eight, nine years, uh, as opposed to two or three that many other sparkling wine regions do. But what other uh, regions in Italy are you interested in uh, are discovering? Oh gosh, um, you know what? There's been I have gotten this year so many Zoom tastings in different regions of of Italy. I, I have to say, I. There, there's so many small places. Um, if you give me a minute, I can I can go back to my blog and tell you what I did. But I I am so impressed. You know, lots lots of places that are near water by the ocean have this interesting terroir. Lots of families um, that needed to get the the word on the street out about their wineries because they obviously couldn't get it to the U.S. and they needed us to write about it to make sure that they remained afloat, you know, just really, really cool you know, places. And, and give me a moment and I'll, I'll tell you one of the ones that really stuck out to me that I am, I am bound and determined I'm going to get on a plane and, and go to when, when we're allowed to roam around the country again, because it was just, it was such a cool experience. Or Pena, let's see. Okay, uh, in Montefiore. The wines that are down there are, I believe, like Alianico, uh, Taurasi, Cota de Volpe. Is that, that what you're talking about? Let's see. This was Fino di Avellino, Taurasi, and Greco de Tufo. Greco de Tufo and Fiano di Avellino. Yeah. We actually used to import Mastro Veradino, which I think is imported now by Taub Family Selections. And have you ever been to Pompeii? I have not. It was on my list to go to last year. Yeah, well. How'd that work out for you? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I pretty much didn't go uh, not far beyond the store last year. <laughs> I mention it because the Mastro Berardino family goes back really old, hundreds and hundreds of years and maybe even more than hundreds. But they have planted or replanted a vineyard in the Pompeii historical zone of wines that were grown there and are making wines like the Romans in Bob, uh, you know, the Romans in Pompeii drank when they were there, which is totally awesome. And I think you can get some of it here in the U.S. I'll look into that for you. But um, what a wonderful story. So not only do you get to see Pompeii, the beauty of that is you get to see it as people, you know, as it was with all the, you know, uh, artwork on the walls and they have the wine shops on every corner with the holes dug out and the, where the amphora would sit and people would walk by and just get a dipper full of, of wine. And now Mastro's making that wine with many of those grapes that you just mentioned, Cote de Volpe and, and so forth. And Laguna is really another another uh, find this year. I was really really impressed by both the the sparklings and and the stills that that I got to try. I even got to try a red, which was pretty amazing. Lugana? Oh, I said I think you said Laguno. Oh, I thought I thought it might be my southern accent. Yeah, it could be Lugana. Yeah, from the other uh, other side of um, uh, Lake Garda from. Uh, Correct. So one of the other things you had made a point when we were originally having a conversation is uh, the impact that the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the 
George Floyd case had on you and recognition of, I guess the key word these days is equity and diversity and, and how that's impacted what you're writing about. Absolutely. Um, well, when George Floyd happened, I made a personal pledge that I was going to not only write more about black winemakers, but but try to um, incorporate them more into my stories um, that were more general in nature. Where, as you know, as a journalist, sometimes you just go to your your ongoing sources and uh, ask the same people because you know they'll respond. You know it'll be timely. And I have been well rewarded with with branching out and and getting some amazing amazing new people in my contact list. And, you know, it's just, it's been something that we as writers have to make sure that we hold ourselves accountable, we hold others accountable. And, you know, there's, there's a big movement right now uh, in, in the wine industry with, with, you know, giving a voice to people that haven't had it in a long time, whether that be um, in diversity, whether that be uh, the Me Too movement, and it really is is time for people to be accountable and to step up and to stop hiding, you know, behind this cloak of secrecy, and to do the right thing. But the reality of the situation is most of the people in the wine industry are Caucasian, just because of the history of Europe um, and, and the United States. So it's one thing to recognize that. It's another thing, I think, to advocate for it. One of the things uh, I was pleased to see the other day, Diageo just set up a fund for, call them diversity-based uh, businesses in the wine and spirits industry. And the same point you made, which is the recognition, and more than the recognition, is empowering them and funding them uh, to be able to get in and, and participate, which you're right. And I think uh, you know that applies not just to uh, color of your skin, but it also happens to sexual orientation. It has to gender alone and uh, all kinds of other things. You had mentioned one thing I thought was really great. I was probing in our original conversation about this blog that stories can change you. And uh, you had mentioned Chapelet. And uh, can you talk about that? Absolutely. Um, so I had the opportunity uh, to to meet with Cyril Chapelet a, a couple of years ago, and it was at a point that um, I was thinking about leaving the the corporate world and uh, starting my own consulting firm or, or doing something else. So we had a one on one lunch and you know talked about the plans for the winery, and you know it was just a really engaging. A great guy. And somehow I looked down at my watch. We had been there close to three hours. I was disclosing to him um, my desire to, to leave the corporation where I headed up marketing and, you know, what I was going to do next and getting his advice and just really found this amazing connection with him where he gave me, you know, some, some advice on, on how to handle it and what to do and um, just some really sage advice on the next step for making this decision. And I'm eternally grateful to him. I, I have told him this when we've run into each other again, but I don't know if he knows the impact um, that, that he had on me personally 
And I was just there to, to write the story about Chapelet. <laughs> Oh, great. Okay. So there's a uh, shift gears a little bit um, and put your marketing hat back on because that's where you really live. And give me some comments on what you see as the, 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 the state of effectiveness and sophistication of marketing as practiced in uh, the wine industry in the United States. And then after that, maybe we can talk about uh, e-commerce. But, but start with generally your perspective from a tech point of view on how the wine industry operates. I think with the pandemic, people realized that they had to do some upgrading if they were going to survive. Historically, the wine industry has been very behind in using marketing as a tool to retain customers the way that I think any other industry uh, would do so. That was very politely stated. Yeah. There's a lot of fear, right? They, they don't, a lot of, of winemakers are farmers. They don't understand technology, but you, you see the power when it's done well. And when the right customers are targeted with the right messages, it does lead to revenue. And clearly I am a big fan of, uh, of, of marketing. It's what I do. I've, you know, live and die by the ROI. And I wish that marketers would uh, would be incorporated more into winery decisions. I personally am seeing a lot more of it. And I think a lot of it is being driven by um, e-commerce and the need to pivot, if you will, from the traditional ways of doing things to electronic ways of doing things. And, and along with that comes the advance in technology in CRM, customer relationship management, um, uh, customer acquisition type programs, who's in control of the relationship be between the customer and the brand. Often it's the retailer, but we've got all these third party elements coming in, which are changing uh, the equation a little bit. Um, so I've heard people say, you know, we've come 10 years in 10 months. Well, that was back about six months ago when the pandemic was uh, before we had the vaccines. But the problem is, I was just listening to a podcast today about it from Avalara and Silicon Valley Bank, is because of the regulatory issues surrounding the beverage alcohol industry and 52 different regulatory entities controlling it, it's very difficult to apply technology that is universally applicable in a market that has 52 different flavors. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's so much confusion um, just just moving from from place to place. I, you know, I told a story today on my blog about meeting with with Remy Cohen, who's the new CEO for, for Domaine Canaris. And we met at a seafood restaurant where we were going to taste wines from from her old position, which was supposed to be paired with oysters. And in Texas, you can't bring any wines in that are not on the list. And so we had oysters and Cabernet instead. <laughs> and how was it? <laughs> you know, it was not as bad as you would think. <laughs> it's a great story. And that's how we became uh, our friendship started. So, <laughs> Well, let me turn that around. Okay. So if you had your druthers, what would you drink with oysters? <laughs> um. Oh gosh, a, a lovely Chablis or Montrachet or a great Champagne. So many great things to drink with oysters. Yeah. Have you had Muscadet and oysters? I have. That's another great choice. Yeah, it's 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 one of those spectacular things that when, when is one of the things that 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 just go together. 
I, I found that in Greece too, uh, a certico from Santorini with lobster that's been freshly uh, fished out and beaten on a rock. Uh, it's just, just kind of a remarkable pairing of things that uh, grow together, go together. That's kind of the way to think about it. Totally agree. So let's bring this uh, to a close and, and talk about, um, I had mentioned that I like to end with what's the one big takeaway. If people are listening to this who maybe aren't telling me who they are or you, is there anything they can apply from what you've learned or talked about, learned about by doing your blog uh, or talked about in, in today's conversation that they, they could put to use immediately? in the industry. Absolutely. I, I think if you have an interest in writing a blog or writing or telling stories or podcasting or um, doing YouTube that you just need to get started, you just need to get it out there and um, you will evolve a lot over the time that you do it. And that's expected and okay and people will support you. You'll be surprised how engaged people will become with you if you just put it out there. It reminds me of a story, a great point. I'll tell you how old this is. It was a former creative director of mine when I worked on an ad agency, and he said, writing's easy. You just put a piece of paper in the typewriter. There's the dating it part. And he says, and then you open a vein. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, when they say it's from the heart, literally in that particular case, but but that's what it is, is you're putting yourself out there, exposing yourself for all the world to see and, you know, read and judge maybe. And um, that's, uh, it's a hard thing to do, but when you do and it impacts people, as you talked about with Chapel A, it's kind of really incredibly rewarding. And that's what I'm enjoying about the, the podcast is, you know, you and I have talked a lot, but um, this conversation we haven't. And it's pretty cool. You know, we just kind of always knew it was there, but we haven't said these things, right? Absolutely. And in the gift of who you actually get to interconnect with and have conversations with, and, you know, it's it's so much fun. It's, it's worth that investment of your time. Great. Okay. So uh, this week we're talking with Melanie Offenlock, uh, who is probably at her last name often misspelled. Uh, who is uh, the Dallas wine chick, the, the famous or infamous Dallas wine chick, and uh, been a blogger for 12 years, writing that blog, one of the longest in the industry, I think, short of uh, Alder Yarrow, who we also spoke with a couple of months ago. So um, I want to thank you, Melanie, for uh, being on the show and also being a friend, and I look forward to seeing you somewhere else in the world sometime soon. I'm so honored to to have been on. It was it was great to connect with you again. So, folks, that's Dallas Wine Chick. Um, and do you have any other uh, social media things that you are active on, or is it just the blog? It's blog. It's Facebook. It's LinkedIn and Twitter. All Dallas Wine Chick. All Dallas Wine Chick. Okay, great. Okay, thank you, Melanie. And uh, that's it for this week. And I uh, hope you tune in next week where we'll have another fascinating interview from with someone uh, I'm just getting to know. Thank you very much. This is Steve Ray signing off for this week. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast.